Itamar Kubovi is the executive creative director of Palabola's Dance Company. Palabola's live performances have been seen by over 5 million people in 69 countries, including the Academy Awards and commissions from Oprah, Ellen, Stephen Colbert, MTV's VMAs, and the Queen of England. Kubovi studied philosophy at Yale, ran theaters in Germany and Sweden, directed plays by John Gare, and for the television show The West Wing. Kubovi created the Palabolus International Collaborators Project, an art innovation engine and production company that creates transmedia projects and performances in collaboration with artists and thinkers from diverse fields, including Art Spiegelman, MIT Distributed Robotics Lab, and Penn and Teller. Mia conducted this interview with Itamar before the launch of the Palabolus inaugural Five Senses Festival. The creative process is looking forward to participating in the second edition of this innovative summer festival. You can catch The Five Senses in Washington, Connecticut from July 21st to August 4th, 2019. Itamar Kubovi, welcome to The Creative Process. I'm interested in the metaphor behind the name of your dance company, Polobolus, which listeners may not know is named after this quite beautiful glass-like barnyard fungus whose spores orientate towards the sunlight and can propel themselves at something like the speed of sound. What were the origins of the company? I think that the company, you know, began now a long time ago, mm -hmm. um, and it started in 1971. So, and the most important thing about it was the one that it was started by a group of non-dancers who really were athletes and um, painters and just had a very different relationship to movement, although it was a very strong connection to their body. Mm. Um, and so I think that was important. And the other thing that was important, I think, that's really become central to everything that we do is that the way in which this group went about making the work ended up involving a kind of collaboration that was just a very different way to work, um, I think, than, than, than people had, had, had really conventionally engaged in before that time. Um, and it was just about a kind of radically democratic collaborative process, which sounds like it would take a long time, and sometimes it does. But it also isn't a polite democratic process. So it isn't, you know, absent of passion, or it isn't like decisions by committee. But it definitely means that the work is made out of a community process of engagement and conversation, disagreement, and trying, failing. Yeah, I, I love that sense of community. I love, I, I, I would like to, if you could go into also your own background, I understand it's from philosophy, theater, it's, it itself is, is not a traditional dance uh, background. Uh, but I, I love this, uh, for, uh, one of your um, projects uh, take on this phrase, ownership without authorship. Exactly right, yeah. exactly right, yeah. And it's amazing that you can actually get, you know, and it applies to so many human endeavors um, that you can actually, you know, we, we live sort of between this feeling of being part of a group that has the power to do amazing things that we can't do alone, mm. and the contrasting sense that we want to have an individual voice.
that is unique to us and the freedom to express and inhabit that voice. And I think that is sort of the central tension of modern times. And, uh, and I think that Palabalas somehow plays with that all the time, trying to think about where did the individual end and the group begin, and also how can the group help the individual achieve things that the individual couldn't do alone. Yeah, and you've done you've done amazing things. I mean, the the, the beauty of the the physical, um, I guess it's human sculpture. What what do you prefer to call it? You know, it's certainly visual. Um, I think. One of the things that we care a lot about is that the work is deeply human. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times in dance, you really feel like the ideal is for the human being to sort of become a line. So you represent a form, an essential form. And in fact, often dancers are referred to as having a beautiful line. Mm -hmm. And it really has to do almost with their graphic kind of grace rather than with their human presence and to us we're very interested in what the eyes are doing and what the character is all sorts of aspects that other choreographers don't really see as interesting and I think that um, so we sometimes call it theater and sometimes we call it sculpture and sometimes we call it you know icons and sometimes we call it moves and I mean we have a whole vocabulary of stuff that we call things but um, but I think the idea that movement is really a manifestation of thought mm. is at the core of what we do could you were going into it a bit when you speak about making images shadowland for me as a painter that I find that so inspiring. And, and what, are, what were the origins of that? You know, it's a funny story because it has a sort of very prosaic beginning. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I was called by a guy, um, or I got an email from a guy, this was in 2006, and he said to me, uh, hey, I want to make a car commercial. Oh. And... Uh, and, and I don't I don't know if this can be done, he said, but what if we had a car commercial with no car in it and it was just the bodies making the shape of the car? And, um, you know, and that's it. And that's all we know. Um, and we thought about it and then we started playing around with like a shower curtain and a bright light like a shadow screen. Mm -hmm and seeing if we could even do something. And then we sort of thought, well, maybe we can, maybe mm -hmm. we can. And we went out to California and in 2006, we shot this commercial. Mm -hmm. And it came out really, really well. Mm -hmm. It really did. It came out very special. And, um, and, uh, and right after that, we got a call from, from the woman who was producing the Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, what's amazing about this commercial that you guys made is that it just feels like humanity is at the core of the creation of every object yeah. on earth. Oh. And it somehow returns you to the feeling that everything is made by people. Yeah. 
Well, everything used to be made by people. It's, I, I think that we're, that's exactly. another thing. Yeah, I, I love the, the mission on, on your, your homepage. And I mean, we have to remind ourselves of that connection. Um, yeah, unfortunately, some things aren't made by humans now. It seems like a big problem. Exactly, but that, I think, was exactly what was powerful about mm. the symmetry yeah. and has remained so, is that it takes things that are obviously not made by people anymore, yeah. and it pretends that they're actually analog yeah. human process. And that's part of what the humor comes from, too. So part of Shadowland is almost this funny idea. Do you remember as a child? Yeah. You're probably much younger than I am, and so I, I remember there was dealing with the big loudspeakers, that inside that big loudspeaker in my parents' house, there were little people who uh -huh. were, like, playing music. Uh -huh. <laughs> and if I could put my eye very close to the loudspeaker, maybe through the cloth, I could see the people yeah. playing the music. And there's some way in which Palabalus is sort of still kind of amused by that idea that there's people back there um, creating this kind of different kind of imagery, which in some way I think is a warm, gives warmth to the, to the presentation and to the material. That's what I think is lovely, because dance is sometimes seen as an elite activity, right? Like some people don't know how to connect with it. And I think that what you do is obviously theater, and what it connects with, as you say, are very... You know, the childlike wonder. I, I, I remember playing you know, the shadow puppetry, and it's, it, it, it's that's at the age when you want to get you know, young people interested in dance and appreciating it. I mean, what are your thoughts? How do you communicate the importance of the language of dance and, and, how, and movement and how important it is to us? You know, it's interesting because I think that part of the question is really about the language, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when people talk about language, you usually assume that it is an agreed upon set of conventions mm -hmm. that you use and assemble to communicate ideas or feelings or whatever it is that you're communicating. But part of what interests us, I think, is that there's this possibility when we go in and when we generally go in a rehearsal, we really have no idea what we're going to make. Like, sometimes we say we know, and sometimes we tell people because we have to, that we're going to do this and this and that. And sometimes that even ends up being the case. But during the way, you have to really get lost in order to find yourself again. So you, you like that not knowing. You like that collaboration. You've really collaborated with some wonderfully talented people. Um, from your beginnings, I guess, in theater, and then I'm seeing you know, you've done work with Art Spiegelman. If you could talk about some of the some of your collaborations over the years. Well, you know, that was sort of what what interested me about this idea that you kind of go into every project not knowing what it's going to be, and then you discover the rules, and you discover the rules based on a whole bunch of circumstances that you don't necessarily you're not really authoring those circumstances. You know, I like this, you like that, we like this, this happens, it's storming outside, all sorts of different factors that we don't have control over. And you let them into the room. Once you let them into the room, 
you suddenly get to a whole new place. And you realize that you're sort of not just in a new place, but you're actually creating the rules of the language of that piece each time you make it. And that was very interesting to me. So we thought, well, wait a minute, we do this ourselves, but could we bring other people into this process? Is this something that we could translate to other fields of people working on making things in other disciplines? And so we started about 15 years ago with this thing called the intern. Uh, it was actually not 15. I'm exaggerating. It was 11 years ago, called the International Collaborators Project, in which we decided that we would reach out to people that were not in the field of dance, and we would create work with them in ways that would try to see if we can do this, if we can really bring in a very different conception. So. Art Spiegelman was a perfect example of that. Someone who's working all the time with movement, sometimes who's working all the time, you know, uh, uh, still imagery, but very much about how you change image in order to convey story. Um, and we did a project with Maurice Sendak as well, which was also an interesting kind of visual artist translated into this kind of movement. When you have this stillness versus this movement, you get this very interesting tension. Um, and so we created essentially a live comic book with art speaking um, that was sort of a, a story about the world and afterlife. And, and, and that's been the case also with OK Go, the band that we made the video and a live piece with. Um, was also the case with Penn and Teller, these magicians in Las Vegas who we did um, a big project with together. So in each one of these projects, the idea is, okay, we don't, I don't know you, you don't know us. Here we are with some of the best dancers and movers in the world, and they're ready to just sit in this room in the countryside on a farm until we make them. And we don't know what we make, but we know we have two weeks or three weeks, and we have six hours a day. And at the end, we're going to show it to everyone. But we don't know what it is, but we know we're going to show it. And creating these kind of constraints allows for amazing things to happen. And the pressure of performance is a very important piece of what allows this. Having those three weeks as opposed to something more, um, you know, like a novelist can give as much time as he needs to it, but that, you, you love the pressure. The pressure is critical. It's not just that I love it. I feel like without the pressure, we would not be able to ever get anything done because there just isn't, you know, our work is sort of an inverted process where we sort of let nothingness echo through the room for long enough until someone can't stand it and then something happens. Mm. And so if that's going to be the process, that pressure needs to have a constant reinforcement from the outside mm. and giving time constraints very strictly is a very helpful way to achieve that. I know that each performance changes a bit, every performance has to change, but are, are you then evolving it sometimes like radically or does it keep its general form? I don't know if you can generalize, but. You know, that's a great question, and I think that's an interesting question in terms of revision mm -hmm. for everything. Yeah. Um, 
And one of the interesting things about live performance, I think, in general, is that you sort of have to make it again every time you perform it. Um, but obviously, a huge amount of questions have been answered by the time you're performing the piece. And so you're not really reinventing everything every time, but you do discover, for example, very typically other choreographers often look for dancers who would be able to fill the role and be replaceable by other dancers. So, you know, I don't want to ask you to do something. If you're a tall person, much taller than the average dancer, I don't want to ask you to do something that relies on your tallness because then you, the next dancer who plays this role will not be able to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Sort of with general, yeah. We're always interested in trying to find the most extreme thing you can do right. with the understanding that the next person won't be able to do this at all. Right. Um, but the thought is why, in order to maintain the idea of the next person doing it, should we not allow you to do what you shine doing, what you can do uniquely? But this means that every time we teach the work to a new dancer, there are always some things that were very specific to the dancer. And so those are the things that need to get reinvented for each dancer and require continual evolution. Sometimes politics change over years. Some of our pieces are 40 years old. You know? Sometimes you realize this is really not working anymore. I'm Sorella Lark, a writer and mixed media artist based in Florida a recent graduate of Eckerd College, and an associate interviews producer for the creative process. As an interdisciplinary creator myself, I'm interested in work that resists categorization, or redefines it. When Kubovi says that he thinks of Palabalus' work as theater or sculpture, the creation of icons, or even movement as the manifestation of thought, he grasps at an essentially elusive nature, a form defined in relation to more recognizable forms but not quite centered in any of them, always shifting, and as he says, creating its own rules as part of the collaborative process. I'm interested in work that must be understood on its own terms, which seems to call attention to its indefinability. In my thesis exhibition at Eckerd College, titled The Collection, I explored the book as aesthetic object, and the process of creation as one that exists in collaboration between artists and audience. I hoped to illuminate with my work the dualities brought to mind when experiencing a book as, for example, both aesthetic and functional, luxury and disposable, as a complete work left incomplete without an audience, as something privately experienced but often widely available, and as an experience of the body in its tangibility and of the mind in imagination. Part of the intriguing nature of Palabalus' work is, I think, in similar dualities. In this interview, Kubovi speaks to the, quote, central tension between the individual voice and the group as author. I find Kubovi's wording here interesting. When he speaks of dance, what one might think of as a purely visual art form, Kubovi introduces concepts of authorship and language. This is not a language of, as he says, an agreed-upon set of conventions, but rather of the spaces between individual perspectives, a language of abandoning the known and conventional to arrive at new rules. This is giving up the self in two senses, to contribute or to give one's voice and experience, but also to surrender to the language of the group. 
The audience, too, engages with the language of the dance, even sometimes as overtly as when Palabolus dancers form letters and words with their bodies, physically embodying the abstract. Later in the interview, Mia and Itamar will speak, among other things, of dance as a mode of storytelling. Their words have allowed me, as I hope they will for you, to consider not only the diverse stories to be told in life, but also to embrace the various possible methods of telling. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Itamar Kabovi, executive producer of Palabolus Dance Company, about his life, work, and creative process. I also like, just as an interjection, you spelled out vote, you, you know, you, you tried to use your platform in order to get across some messages. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's just about finding ways to communicate with people in a way that relates to their lives and to the way that they want to be communicated with. I think there is an enormous, you know, sea change in culture that's going on right now, mostly as a result of the digital revolution, but also as a result of migration and immigration and global economics. All sorts of things are going on that I think are really changing the world at a very, very, very fast pace. And I think it's really one of the first times that we've not been able to even imagine what 20 years from now is going to be like. Oh, I And we were... You know, when we were small, I mean, when, when I was a kid, no one had a question. 20 years would be better cars, but it would just be the same like it is now. Mm. And that's not the case anymore. I think no one answer. Not in business, not in art, not in culture. But I do think that it's interesting how so much culture really pushes back and wants to believe that it's own space sacred, you know, art and culture somehow occupies the sacred space when, in fact, that's a very modern idea, and I think that art and culture and science used to be much more integrated in people's minds than they are now. So, yeah. Uh, um, anyway. It, yeah, it was more, it was more collective. I mean, from, from my point of view, you know, like, a there was an atelier system for, for painting, say, you know, where, where it was much more um, communal, like like what you do, and now it's become more about the celebrity of the artist, and it's it, in a way that's kind of, I think, sad that it's become like a, a marketing, you know, it, whereas I just felt there was more, um, I don't know, maybe it's, it's just how I romanticize the past, but I, I, there was this a sense of the collective more, I, I feel, that it does become a lot about the individual. I think that's true. Yeah. I think that's really true. And I think being able to sort of understand what we have to do in order to return to some sense of a you know, society of different people that are coming together is really, it is just really a very urgent question. One that we're trying to answer by or organizing a festival. Oh yes. Um, I've been teaching a class in New York called Designing for the Five Senses, and it's sort of the idea being really, what is the difference of designing within a discipline or a silo, like designing within the world of a painter, designing within the world of an architect or a musician versus what if you really think about 
relationship between this input and the organs, the physical organs that we have that receive this kind of information. Um, and we work and do our work about an hour and a half north of New York on a farm. And the owners of this farm, who are very um, uh, established art collectors in New York, mm -hmm. came to us and said, you know, we're going to give you a big piece of land here, um, and we'd like to start a festival. And this summer, in the end of July, we're having the first um, Globalist Five Senses Festival, which mm -hmm. involves food and music and dance and comedy and film um, and writers speaking about ideas of time and freedom. And it all happens outdoors with a big fire in the middle and a huge geodesic dome that is a tent that is going to house performances and then a big tower that is really essentially a wine bar, but it goes up about 25 meters and you sort of have a little balcony room at the top. So this kind of three-week festival happening in the country and really thinking about how do we connect again with our senses and how do we worry about, you know, not so much the content of our work initially, but realize that that content is very connected to the story that involves how do we see the work, what is the context, what is our mindset when we look at work, and what is the sort of ritual of culture, um, which I think is really, really, really changing much faster than anyone realizes. That's a beautiful... What I like about your work, and when I was thinking, because I had talked to Etka about you before, uh, is that is that you have all this space for telling stories. I think more so than a lot of dance companies, and that that was yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I love that. I mean, in a funny way, it's all storytelling, right? Like yeah. It's such a. It's almost like time and sequence mm -hmm. create story. And so you don't, you know, as soon as you have some consciousness, the time is passing. And if you don't have consciousness, the time is passing. You're either dead or you're deeply disconnected from the world. Yeah. Um, and so somehow it's really about connection. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things, oddly, that the Internet has done is it appears like it's something that connects us, when in fact it is something that disconnects us because it removes any of the requirement of actually doing the things that are associated with communication. So it's almost like speaking without consequence, you know, and the lack of consequence ends up making you feel less real, like the world just feels like you can shoot on the internet and people don't die. Yeah, it's really strange. And I think that that's, that's not a healthy, like that's a very warped reality to live in. So part of what I'm interested in is I believe there needs to be a very regular habit in the 
behavior of culture that provides for the senses and time to be reunited, like reconnected around something. Even a very short time of that reconnection, I think, can provide a great deal of sanity that otherwise I think we tend to lose. Yeah, the one thing I think, I guess, privileged as artists as well, I won't say all artists have it, but we, we're trying to always refresh our senses and pay attention. Because, you know, so we, so if that's something that, that you can communicate to your five senses festival, um, maybe others aren't so much in the habit of that, you know? Um, right, and what do we pay attention to? And we all pay attention to things or or train ourselves to pay attention to things. But in a funny way, it's that, I don't know if you felt this, but sometimes you do, you pay attention in the way that was successful for you in the last time. Right. And by, you mm -hmm. kind of get bored with that particular way of paying attention. Yeah. So it becomes kind of known, like I've, I've done this already. And there needs to be some element of innovation or, as you said, surprise or the unexpected, mm -hmm. which I think is part of what we try to bake into the process rather than hope we find it. And it makes it more interesting. I was wondering if you could talk about it, because we, I mean, it is theater what you do now, but you, your theater work before, you're like, you're, you're, you're like path towards um, Palabalas. And um, and even like your background in philosophy, you know some of the the other things. How you found your way there? Yeah, you know it's a good so, question. I was an yeah. immigrant. I was born in Israel, yeah. and I came here. My parents were academics, and I came here. When, you know, I was four and grew up mostly in Connecticut, outside of New York, mm. and um, and then went to school here and university. But I think that somehow there was always an experience of being sort of an outsider, you know, um, and somehow not really being part of this American society. And I had very ambivalent feelings about it. Um, and then I think somehow that brought me to be very interested in, in looking at the world, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and trying to figure out how to how to make sense of something that was always sort of in, incomprehensible to um, And I think that has very oddly led in some strange logic from one thing to the next that ended up bringing me to where I am right now. But the key piece with Philobolus that I think for me was so interesting was one, this kind of rural community that keeps working together over and over and over again. ownership of the work very different. But the other thing was that it didn't use words. And I spent a long time thinking about words, directing plays with words, films with words. And there was something about that that kept me from being able to look at a whole bunch of other kinds of communication between people that doesn't have anything some ways is really much more important for the 
that with each other than than being able to all, you know, as it were, speak the same language. I think we need to be able to be together physically um, in a way that, that 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 allows for that kind of live connection to exist. I'm going to um, Singapore. Yes. In a couple of weeks to mm-hmm. work on a project that has to do with the airport, the new, mm-hmm. the new part of their airport that they're building. And it's really about the, the question we're trying to answer is, is how do people feel good, you know, inside a space that is enormous and has to do all of these what can we do to create the kind of environment that allows people to move in that environment in a way that makes them feel connected and in a way that makes them feel like they're part of a community um, rather than these spaces as they have traditionally been designed, which has very much been for the service of the scale of the use, the industrial use, which I've always felt was so like not very interesting when you start thinking about all of the things going on in the world in terms of systems, whether it's education or whether it's transportation or whether it's um, work, that they really were designed for the machine. They were designed for this state of efficiency. They were designed for the spreadsheet. They were designed for the inventions of their time. Cities are all designed around the product, which is a car, mm. right? Like every yeah. city was either designed that way or had to be redesigned. So now we're not going to have cars anymore. And what does that mean about the city? Those are fascinating questions. And what does it mean about people and how they move and how they travel and how they fall in love and meet each other or don't meet each other? You know, one of the things we're discovering is that with Facebook and a lot of the uses of the internet, you know, it drove people apart rather than brought people together. And it allowed people to exist in these bubbles and to sort of withdraw and to only be speaking to a certain kind of person that was similar to them. So I think that how do we work on making, you know, on working against that and on sort of fighting for human and it's a very it's an interesting challenge and urgent role that I think storytelling and culture must play a big role in and if we don't play uh, take responsibility to try to define and design how that should work it will be designed in a way that doesn't work or that works to the opposite effect so movement and and non-linguistic aspect of Palopolis for me was a very mind-opening thing because it actually connected a kind of global view, which prior, when I was so deeply connected to language in the work that I was doing telling stories, seemed like it had a much more local. It's so fascinating. There's so many um, questions I didn't expect to ask came up, and, and when you talk about travel and um, do you have a preferred 
form of travel that kind of inspires you to think of ideas, trains, or boats? Are you working on your project with planes at the moment? I love that question. That's a great question. Um, yes, I do. I love driving. Oh. I love driving. And you need to take a lot of places? time driving. You know, I love driving anywhere. I'm really happy driving because I like driving with friends like with another person in the car and I think part of what I like about it is that you don't have to look at the other person <laughs> it's, it's interesting yeah and so you have this kind of you know I always thought that when friends contemplate like the funnest kind of friendship is when you get to be when you're with a friend but you're really both focused on something else mm. I find that to be because in a way, you're not really looking straight at each other. You're kind of both kind of sitting at a cafe table watching the people go by and making comments to each other. Yeah. And I love that. I love the fact that that is a way of being together, of looking at the world together, um, versus looking at each other. Yeah, it's like a confessional. Um, driving is yeah. a good metaphor for that. Yeah, uh -huh. exactly. It's like a confession. Exactly, exactly. You can say more when you're both not looking, when you're not looking at each other. And another so. question that came to mind because you just it's so fascinating is that when you're, you're from the shadow, uh, shadow land and connecting with children, I wonder if as you're creating dances. Do, do you study the movements of children? Do you work sometimes with children or how? We work a lot with children uh -huh. and we're always fascinated by, um, you know, at some point it's almost like everyone is, this is sort of a cliche, but everyone is sort of like born with this ability to play, yeah. to be physical and to be connected to their bodies. Mm -hmm. And at some point you lose it. At some point, it's sort of like taken out of us or grows out of us or sucked out of us. It's hard to know what it is, but it feels like at some point that kind of expression becomes not okay and it needs to have much more discipline to it and it's sort of too sensual, probably happens sometime around the beginning of sexuality right. or not of sexuality, but of puberty. And you know, at that point, something, that, you know, dancing too much once you've reached puberty becomes inappropriate yeah. in some funny way. It's like too much. And somehow this subtle lesson gets placed into all of the children's schools help a lot. You know, schools are so unencouraging to play. They're so... Yeah. You know, you would think it's a cool place to go, you know, that, that, that you would go and you would learn through playing and, 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 and being silly. But generally, you get more and more channeled into, into um, you know, just getting it right. And that all feeds into a kind of closing of the imagination. Um, and I think that it becomes something you just don't do in and finding ways in which that can happen. I think there's a generation of people now that are very thirsty for it. 
Yeah, but yeah, it has to be sort of organized. In a way, in a way sort of maybe the art is a way of, like, um, uh, how do you say? Or I, I guess not organized play, but yeah, permission to play. <laughs> permission to watch some yeah. other people play. <laughs> it's right, strange. sort of yeah. making rules and then breaking rules, yeah. which really is what playing is in some way. It's sort of you're always trying to figure out how to turn something on its head. Um, and so I think that that's an extremely important way to think about a growing idea of art, which has to do really with the stuff that sort of enhances the senses and speaks to the to play in some way, to sort of pushes the imagination. You know, in, in the old days we used to say it's metaphor. But in a way, I'm not sure that metaphor is physical enough to describe the kind of play that is required to engage people in a way that makes them feel something when they're living in a world that is so kind of equalizing in terms of feeling. So, so this is what we're trying to do. Whatever medium we're doing it in, we sort of try to figure out how do you get at that nerve and how do you play with that nerve. You know, because we share this with students and we invite their creative responses and, 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 and since so many people, have, adults, have forgotten how to play, what are some of exercises that you use to remind yourself or your dance company, you know, to keep those senses alive? What do you, yeah. You know, I think it has to do, this is where the group really comes in, because I think part of what is the hard thing when you're playing is to come up with things that are new all the time, just to turn, to think in new ways, to turn to, you know, it's only play when you can be able to have some fresh kind of sense of surprise or sense of unanticipated outcome. And I think there is a, um, a way in which a good, a good group that is working together well um, usually requires the group to be pretty diverse, you know, like um, that, that, that good groups tend to have not the same person five times or six times, but to have six different people that can each provide something different. And the reason I think that makes good groups is that just by having all these different perspectives, you're sort of beginning to force people to look at things from different points of view at the same time. Wow. By doing that, that's what play is. Like yeah. doing that, practicing, being able to have empathy, to say, oh, I see how she sees it, and I see how I see it. And they're both true. That's the beginning of that fresh thinking, and it also happens to be critical for communication. What is the casting? I don't know if you say the casting, but how do you choose your dancers? You've been working with some for a while. How do you, what are you looking for in them? You were saying you want a diverse a group. Question. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, I think what you're really looking for is someone that has the capacity to play. They're usually somewhere between 21 years old and 30 years old. Uh -huh. We usually have 200 or 300 people 
samples for every single spot. Wow. And, you know, you sort of go, our, our process to select takes four or five days of continual work with this group. And we do it in a very special way because we sort of have 200 people there in the first day. And then at the end of that first day, we basically lose 150 people for each part. But we invite those people to stay if they want to stay, even though they've, they've been told they did not get the job. We say, you're welcome to stay. And not everybody stays, but a bunch of them stays. And so by the end, each time this group gets smaller, so at the end of day one, it's 50. At the end of day two, it's 25. At the end of day three, it's 12. And then at the end of the fourth day, we make our choices. But many of the people stick around. So at the end, it becomes like this huge journey for dozens of people who've been watching and participating and thinking and doing all of this. So I just want to sort of describe the context of our selection process because it's a very special, you know, most people just say, okay, give me two minutes and do something. And then I decide I like you, I don't like you. And then I do it again and again. But we sort of do it very differently. And then I guess when you ask what we're looking for, it's very hard to, to, to say exactly. But I can tell you that if you ask people to jump up and down 10 times and to run around the stage in a circle mm. two times and to walk in a circle two times, around the stage, we can basically figure it. I mean, we can, we can get through 50% of the people in about five minutes by doing this. Wow. People don't know how to walk even trained dancers. So it's like just people how to know how to walk and know how to run and know how to jump. Yeah. And if you think about it, there are very few people who really look good when they're running. Okay. Yeah, I've seen them. I, I jog in Luxembourg Gardens, and I've seen you know, some people. You know, and there are very weird. few people, yes, very few people who look good when they're jumping. Yeah. <laughs> and actually not so many people that look good when they're walking either. So and when I say look good, I mean I that it just feels like there is a grace or an athleticism or a comfort or a kind of connection to the ground, to their body. Um, so that, a lot of it is like very, very simple, you know, and then people, and then you kind of go in stages and then people must be comfortable upside down, sort of some people can still remain oriented when they're upside down very well and others people just get very confused immediately. Right. Okay. Um, I was so just... that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And then humor, and oh, then we point. move to humor, and then from humor you move to elastic thinking, and I think there's a whole bunch of layers, but um, it's an interesting and involved process. And I, this, I, I just have to slip this question in, because you talked about coming uh, to America as a, a young person. I've noticed when I've spoken to, to other artists, it seems to be there's, there's a certain number of them, it's that being uprooted or moving, that otherness and being able to observe. 
And I was wondering that, um, you know, that kind of uh, fracture from, from home, and um, I was wondering, as you become more, obviously you're very at home in, 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 in many different uh, countries, but as you become more home in America, and it, be, it is your home, do you lose part of that um, creative tension that might have been set up? I mean, how do you reconnect with that? The feeling like an other, which is very Well, inspiring. I can tell you, yeah, you know, I can tell you that the politics of our country over the last few years have taken care of this problem because oh, yeah. so much of the experience of being an American over the last few years, I'm sure for people on every side of the fence, has been this strange feeling that you don't know the rest of the people in the country. Yeah, aliens among us. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, you just sort of feel like, wait a minute, half the people don't, uh, like, are not like me, whether you were on one side or the other. And I think that that created and continues to create enormous problems. But more than anything, it has, in some sense, very much focused for me that feeling of outsider and kind of made it almost... feel like there is a voice to speak like the voice of the immigrant is such an important voice to help heal this country because it is a voice that understands the position of being outside and that is exactly what is at stake at the moment. so right. we'll see what happens but I feel like I have a strong connection at the moment to this feeling even inside the United States, because in some sense, I feel, as you said, everyone is an alien. Right. You've actually already addressed it, but it's something that we do ask. You've addressed the question about technology and the importance of the humanities, because this one's for the European Conference for the Humanities. But, yeah, yeah, if you could just talk about the importance of education and the humanities, um, maybe just the art. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think... Um, I have a friend who was involved in the redrafting of the curriculum mm -hmm. at Yale. And I think there are a lot of readdressing gestures towards the curricula of universities in the last years, given all the strange things going on on college campuses. But, um, but one of the things that I found very powerful about this rewrite was they, they said that the most important part of an education was one that you would not be able to maintain the kind of self-segregated bubble that you're able to maintain online. So education must somehow put you into contact with different And the second piece that was interesting in that was that it, with the element of surprise, in which they said that it, the goal of the education, the mission of Yale University is to have people learn something different from what they thought they were going to learn, right. sort of to create accidental outcomes like that that are not. So I thought both of those were really powerful pieces. 
The other thing I'm struck by constantly when we try now to bring some of these ideas to different aspects of the work force in the United States is I'm just shocked at how, you know, so many groups and institutions are recognizing that there is a new approach that needs to be adopted for working teams and hierarchies and the nature of work and the workplace. All of these are big issues. But um, but I think that what they don't realize, I think often, is that the skills of the people that are sitting in those jobs are deeply in conflict with the skills required to perform well at our, in, in our time. And it's like our educational system spent a long time trying to feed an industrial model where ultimately the person needed in order to be able to fulfill the fundamental role in some kind of rational industrial system. It needed, you needed to basically fulfill the role of a machine. Yeah. And I think that I think that that's what people were taught. How to do that well. How to be accurate. How to be quick. How to be able to sort of do functions like that easily. How to learn the software and technologies that allow you to do that even more easily. But the skills like listening, like empathy, um, like leadership, like maintaining relationships, like listening and responding, like recognizing good ideas and being vocal about that. You know, there's so many little pieces of culture that are required to make a network based world continue to function and for people to be successful in it. And it feels like everything we were taught in our sort of large American school system was basically the opposite. And so I think there's an enormous amount of change that needs to happen in education. And I think in some instances it's beginning to. But we're really working and teaching our future using systems that are antiquated and that don't really relate. You know, why are our kids walking around with bells and, you know, every 43 minutes and lunchroom? It feels like the school is like a prison. That's, it's yeah. sort of they run the same way. The school's a prison apart from that. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, on another level, it's not Yale. That's, because uh, yeah, we have some projects with inner city kids, but... Um, I feel lucky. I mean, you had a, I'd say, a pretty positive um, experience of education, despite the flaws in our educational system. Totally. Mm -hmm. And I got the best that there is. Yeah. And I feel like I sensed it very much, but I see my kids and I see, and I mostly just see the workforce. You know, you see what people have been taught to be like, that's how you do a good job and how that's been reinforced. And then you realize this is just, you can't just say to everyone, okay, new idea now. We're all going to work in teams and we're all going to be productive and innovative and creative. And we're all going to respect and love diversity when everything you've learned for 40 years is the opposite. Mm -hmm. 
It's a simp it seems like such a simple idea to remind us that we're not our machines and we're not the ideal isn't to become a machine. But right. Amazing. Yeah. I anyway, I don't anyway. Wanna, yeah, I don't want to take keep you any longer. You have wonderful projects to to realize and mm -hmm. work on and um it's just been a, it's a great pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you and I am truly grateful for your time and for adding your voice to the creative process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Experiential Learning Coordinator is Laura Moriano. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Sorella Lark. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, traveling to leading universities, or published on our website at www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening. Thank you.